Welcome to a special episode of Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom, and we've been busy cooking up something tasty for season three. In the meantime, I bring you to New Orleans, where in typical New Orleans tradition, we try something new, a live recording of Bridgeband's very first panel at Essence Festival, centering on black women and philanthropy. This panel is moderated by my brilliant Bridgeband partner, Tanyal Edwards, and features panelists Morgan Dawson, the co-CEO of Threshold Philanthropy, Tanisha McHarris, the co-founder of the Black Feminist Fund, Carmen James Randolph, the founding president and CEO of Women's Foundation of the South, and Susan K. Thomas, the president of Melville Charitable Trust. So excited to have you join this wonderful conversation where we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do better. Live from Treme, this is Dreaming in Color. Any of you folks who have worked with me in the past or have listened to my podcasts, you know that I love to start with a bit of an invocation. Uh, it's a tribute to my New Orleans upbringing, my good Jesuit education. And for this one, I'm going to use our, our favorite, James Baldwin. For nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born, and we're responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. The sea rises, the light fails, lovers cling to each other, and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. Uh, so Baldwin's always timely. Also, last day of pride, happy pride. Put it out there. Okay. So hello, everyone. I am Darren Ice. I'm a partner in Bridgepan San Francisco office. I'm so happy to see all of you guys here. I have to say, even before we jump in, some many months ago, we talked about what events we wanted to have this year um, and where it would be important for us to show up. And someone on the team threw out Essence. And I was like, yeah, Essence. <laughs> Why not Essence, right? Like, it makes complete sense. And then as I talk with folks, they're like, wait, Bridgeband's doing Essence? I was like, Bridgeband is doing Essence. So here we are at Essence. So give you guys all a round of applause. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's great to see folks that I know in the room, folks that are new to me, folks that know each other. The beautiful panel, we'll get to them in just a little bit. I have the easy task of presenting you guys to Tanya in just a bit, but more importantly, just setting the space in the room as well. Uh, I am a New Orleans native, a seven-generation New Orleans native, so it's always good to be home. Uh, I've expatriated to California, but New Orleans is always home. Home is where your mom is, right? Uh, and so good to be here. And it was actually really fun being downstairs earlier, looking over the exhibit and saw a random picture uh, talk about Miss Godin who opened a school here in Treme. Uh, and my grandmother is descended from a Godin. So Godin and Bakier. So you see your family history. And you remember that we've been in this fight for a long time. Uh, it's from a picture from 18-something. Right? My family's been here since 1790s. So it's always a reminder of the great legacy that we all build upon and that we have to continue as black folks in this work. Excited to celebrate black women because black women are doing all the things always. Uh, it's not lost on me that I'm the gay black guy. Uh, convening folks for Black Women's Panel, right, uh, in New Orleans. And that's why Tanyelle is going to take over uh, and shift things from this end. But I just wanted to offer a few thoughts as we jump in to set the context. Uh, and I'm reminded um, as we uh, are dealing with the Supreme Court that's gone, the Supreme Court has gone wild. And we can talk over cocktails about Clarence Thomas because I got a, a plan for him, which I don't want to be recorded. Uh, so I do, I do want to stay employed and I don't want to be on anybody's list. But we got to deal with him. But I'm also reminded of civil rights attorney Donald Hollowell. And so Hollowell was civil rights attorney 
in Georgia. He was around during the days of Thurgood Marshall. He was a lot less successful than Thurgood Marshall um, because he was working in the toughest states uh, and at the state level. But he offered us a really important gem uh, that I hold on to all the time. He talked about in the social justice work, there were always two battles happening at one time. There was the courtroom battle um, across the various courts across the land, and there was the kitchen table battle. And he said that we don't win the courtroom battles very often. Very, very seldomly, in fact, do we win the courtroom battles. Um, but we always have to win the kitchen table battle. Right? And I think about that as we think about the fight for the narrative within the country itself. I also, and part of the reason I'll share a little backstory here on the podcast, was that as we were thinking about doing the podcast, Streaming on Color, self-plug here, go see it if you haven't seen it already, go listen to it, download it. I want to recreate in those conversations the kitchen table conversations that I grew up listening to. And I grew up in New Orleans, the city of matriarchs. And those black women at the table, they knew things. They, I joke all the time that everything I need to know about philanthropy, about IITOC, your theory of action, about thinking strategically, about spreading the resources, but thinking about the chess game, I learned sitting at the kitchen table watching my grandmother have conversations with folks around her. She could counsel, consult anyone, from the poor mother across the street to a college student deciding about a PhD, anyone, to the white man that she worked for, right? And so for me, it was important for me to show what those kitchen table conversations look like uh, for others to see the genius that was happening in black homes and the genius that is black women. Uh, and so I'm excited to celebrate the black women that are here today. I'm excited for the world to see the brilliance that is black women in the space. Uh, and I was talking with someone yesterday, I was at dinner uh, with Ify and her husband, wonderful dinner, Doc Arnola, amazing restaurant, just put it out there. Um, and we were talking about what keeps us hopeful and I talk about, for me, what keeps me hopeful is the amazing folks doing the work. Whenever I feel a sense of despair, I have these conversations with these folks. I'm like, yeah, the right is acting up. White folks are acting up like white folks have always acted up. Right? This is not new. But we got something for them. We have a brilliant set of folks that are working on it. So we're in really good hands. And the work for us is to keep the work going and to be progressing in the work itself. Uh, and so with that, I want to thank you guys all again for being here. I also want to thank you for doing the work that you're doing. We are making a difference. Doesn't feel like it <laughs> very often, I know. But listen, it doesn't feel like it all the time, but I know for a fact that the reason that they're acting up is because they see that we coming, right? All the things they're trying to pull away are things that are working. They know they're working or they wouldn't be bothered. And also just a reminder that the existence of black Americans is a reminder to this country that so much of our founding principles are lies. And so it hurts people to see us do well. It really disrupts the narrative. But we've always done well. We're gonna like, go back down and see my great-great-grandmother go down, down there with her school in 1826. We've always provided for each other. We've always made a way. We've always managed to thrive. We've always looked spectacular as you look now, right? And so we have to continue doing that. Uh, so with those as closing thoughts, I wanna just one, uh, once again a shout out uh, from an ancestor perspective, the folks that we carry with us. It's a theme that we'll talk about later in the day as well with Tanyelle, uh, to my grandmothers, uh, both my New Orleans grandmothers, uh, Lucinda Hadley Elwa. Uh, I was talking with someone on the cameraman who's from La Rose, my folks are from Cutoff and, and um, Lafouche Parish. One grandmother, my other folks are from the city now, don't get it twisted, right? Um, and then my other grandmother, Lois Bakier Isom, my father's mother. 
Those are folks that I keep with me all the time, uh, and they keep me peaceful, they keep me grounded, and they remind me of the long legacy that I'm a part of and the long legacy that I continue with those that come after me. And with that, I am lucky to pass you to my colleague, Tanyelle, uh, who she'll introduce herself as well, but I also want to say that Tanyelle was also a Howard grad, uh, HU. You know. Right, there are a few of us here. <laughs> Howardites, we always act up, you know how it is. Uh, thanks guys, enjoy the, enjoy the panel. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you so much, Darren, for just sharing the space with me and, and to the amazing women who I have the just honor to sit alongside. Thank you. And thank all of you who are here. Uh, you could be doing anything today. It's Essence after all. So there is plenty of options. Uh, just want to get started. I'll first just introduce myself and I'll share my role, organization, and the hats that I'm wearing today. As black women, we share we wear multiple hats regardless of our professional titles and roles and all of those things. I'm Tanyelle Edwards. I am a partner with the Bridgespan Group. I the hats I'm bringing in before this, I was actually in philanthropy uh, for the last seven years at a private foundation in Houston and held multiple roles there. And so, bringing in the the hat of a former, like a, a person who was formerly giving away resources. And I'm also bringing in the role of a, a hat of a mother. My son is actually in New Orleans with me today. He's, his fourth birthday is today. So happy birthday, Mansa. Uh, just giving him a shout out. He's at the aquarium with his dad because my, <laughs> my partner's from New Orleans. So this is his home. So my son's seeing his home for the first time. And then also, of course, here just as a facilitator. So what I'm grateful for is just to be able to, to set the, the recreate, we set the space, but really I want this to be a conversation between us, a conversation amongst black women who are all doing incredible work. Um, so with that, I will toss it to our first panelist. And we're gonna just introduce yourself, uh, your name, your role, organization, and the hats that you're wearing today. Hi, I'm Morgan Dawson. I'm trying not to be too loud because I'm usually loud, but they have me talking into a mic. Um, I'm the co-CEO uh, and founder of Threshold Philanthropy. Um, the hats that I'm bringing in today, um, I think I'm being someone who just started a sabbatical. Yes. So someone who's deciding what rest looks like for them. Um, an artist, and I, I think I'm always holding the idea of what it looks like to be a good neighbor I think in philanthropy, we so often talk about community, um, but we, we talk about it in the realms of being better philanthropists, and I wish we would talk about it like we were being better neighbors. Hey, good people. I need to stop, too, because I'm mic'd, and I just go, mm-hmm. So I'm sorry for whoever's controlling audio. Hi, I'm Tanisha McCarris. Um, I am the co-founder and co-director of the Black Feminist Fund. Uh, and the hats I'm wearing, I don't even know how many hats I'm wearing right now, but the hat <laughs> I know is just someone who um, is trying to be honest, both about who I am, the work I do, who I love, who I care about, and who I am, even if it changes at the given moment. Just like live in my true honesty and wear that honest hat. Um, and a principled black feminist um, are the two hats I think I'm wearing today. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to New Orleans. I am Carmen James Randolph, and I am the founding president and CEO of the Women's Foundation of the South, based here in New Orleans. 
the hats that I'm wearing today, I'm wearing a very prominent hat of family. Um, I'm a daughter. I'm wearing the hat of sister. My brother is here. I'm wearing the hat of wife and the hat of mother. So all three of the men that I just that I'm connected to are busy also getting ready for Essence Weekend. Mm. Um, and so I'm wearing this hat of trying to support them uh, as well. So in addition to those hats, um, I wear the hat also of black woman feminist mm. and leader. Good afternoon, I was about to say good morning. Good afternoon, mm -hmm. Susan Thomas. I'm the president of Melville Charitable Trust. And uh, the biggest hat that I wear is mom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wearing the hat of a uh, best friend who came with me. Um, my sister friends uh, of too many years are the ones who hold me up. Uh, and I'm wearing the hat of, you know, when I, when I heard that question, I thought of Torchbearer. Mm -hmm. And I thought of it in the context of where we are right now and the mm -hmm. darkness um, that of yesterday. Um, and that we have to be torchbearers. We have to bring in the light. Um, and so I'm wearing that hat. Thank you so much for that, y'all. I literally have chills. And I'm sitting with um, Darren's reflection about his grandmothers and mm -hmm. the ancestors and the elders that we also carry as we come into this conversation. I am so grateful to still have my 97-year-old grandmother here as an elder to me and just to imagine what she experienced, endured, saw to have the conversation. I had the opportunity to have the conversations about the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and stuff. And just to hear that and the work, the work they did and, and, and what they carried, it's beautiful to, to one, be able to continue to tell their truths because they're living, uh, the, the living truths. And then I also hold the, the ancestors. So two sisters who were gone too soon and my um, youngest who, who was thinking about epigenetics and like what that means and what the future could look like given the thinking and the, just the, the realm she was thinking in was just absolutely beautiful and so forward thinking and so holding that closely with me right now. She is my, my husband's little sister, so my sister-in-law. Um, and then my sister uh, who uh, passed last year who taught well-being and taking care of yourself and rest and care and restorative, just all, bringing all of that into this conversation. So. That's who I'm holding and carrying in as, as we come today. Would love to just invite you to share as you enter the conversation, which ancestors and elders are you carrying with you? Yeah, um, I, I think my first thought was like my great grandmother, my mother's grandmother, Bessie, and then my grandmother, Essie, who passed and they were best friends and they passed a month apart. Um, and then I'm also thinking of the reason I said yes to um, building this company, which was uh, Toyin Alua. She was an activist who passed in 2020, mm -hmm. um, who was doing a, a march for Tony McDay, the trans um, person who passed, and she was murdered. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking and, and talking to my funder and saying, 
what the fuck are we doing if the woman who is running this that no one else wants to run doesn't have a place to sleep? If I'm going to do this with you, we need to think about philanthropy differently. We need to fund individuals, not just um, passion, you know, white people's passion projects, but like black people's safety and slumber and housing. And, and so I often am just carrying toy in when I'm thinking it's too much. I'm like, well, I have a place to sleep. Mm. Thank you. I should not be on this panel. <laughs> yes, you should. Don't Only ever say that to me. Y'all, y'all be talking, and everything I had prepared is gone. Um, so let me pull it together. Uh, so you know, the person that I always will return to is my great grandmother. So I appreciate you lifting yours up, and it is my mother's, um, my mother's grandmother, my mother's mother's mom. Her name was Rosina, but we called her Rose. And in fact, many of us called her Aunt Rose. She raised me along with my mother. And I got the gift of being raised along my, along my mother and my great grandmother. And she taught me three things. See, I don't even know what them three things are, but that way it holds me accountable. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the first thing that she taught me was that love required profound strength, mm. even in the face of profound disappointment. Mm. She taught me strength. Oh, the second she taught me is that I should not expect harm. Mm. And that when harm happens, someone should be held accountable and I deserve to be angry. Mm. And that was the lesson that has continued to make sure that I can stand in my fullness in my life because harm happens. Mm. And there is something around what it means to experience harm in the world that we live in, especially as black women, that expects it. Yeah. And so she told me that I should never expect harm in when it happens, treat it like it should never have had. Yes. So that's the second. And then I'll just say the third is she taught me that I get to be the person I want to be and like what I like and not feel like anything of it is frivolous. She loved fashion. She loved laughter. She loved to cook and she loved to talk shit. <laughs> and I get to be all of those things too and it does not disappear my most principled political self. See, you deserved it. There we go. Yeah. I pulled in a gamble. Hey, pulled in a gamble. Yeah. Well, well, I'm feeling like I don't need to be on this thing. <laughs> So I will default to what I did prepare to say. <laughs> so in thinking of ancestors and the words of our ancestors that speak to us, the words of Toni Morrison, who was just a prolific writer, mm. who I just inhaled her books, just inhaled her books. And there is a quote from Toni Morrison that I came across as I was taking on this role. And it stays with me. And that is, as you enter positions of power and influence, dream before you think. And that stays with me because for the work that we're all doing, it requires us to dream. Come on. Mm -hmm. 
And you can't dream if you don't sleep. Come on. Mm. Come on. <laughs> and dreaming oh, okay. is a release. Mm. And it is a way of seeing what is present, not as it is, but as it can be. Yeah, yeah mm. that's good. You better say that. Yeah. And I have to follow all that. <laughs> all that. You got it. You got it. Um, I, uh, I carry in with me my great, 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 great grandmother, Mary Black. I know that's not really her name, but that's what the name was on the manifest on the slave ship. And she landed in Virginia. And the last census that I was able to trace, she was 102. And I tell my children, that's who you have inside of you. Someone who survived the inner passage, landed here, was enslaved here, and she was 102. That's who you have inside of you. So I carry her. I carry her granddaughter, Mary Lizzie, who was our first landowner um, in our family in Georgia. Uh, and I have Mary Lizzie's um, journals. And she created this hair product for black women. And this was 1902. And she wrote in the, in the margins of this book the formula and her notes and her thoughts. And I think, where was she educated? How did this happen? I'm so curious about her. And then I carry my mother, um, who was a force. All of our mothers were a force. <laughs> and my mother was, was no different. Um, she passed a few years ago. And, um, and my mother taught us that if you want something, you get it. You get it. There's a plan B. A, my mother had a plan B, C, D, E, and F. And you get it. And that is who I carry in with me. Um, I remember my mom telling us about um, they were denied housing. They had shown up. You know the story. They showed up, and um, it was a black person and not a white person, last name Thomas. And then the house was not available. And so she and my father sued in 1961 in Pittsburgh, first lawsuit. They got the death threats. They got the phone calls. They got all of that. And I remember they won, and my sister said, so how much did you win? And my dad was like, we didn't win any money. We won the right to live where we wanted to live. And so that's who I bring in. Ooh-wee! Okay, so... <laughs> I'm from Houston, by the way. <laughs> so you all could no doubt be doing anything. You women are you're brilliant. You could be doing anything. You've chosen the field of philanthropy. So from your perspective, given the concept of the existence of philanthropy is truly a, it's a, it's an oxymoron, it could be a double-edged sword, all of those things, can you just share, shed a little light on how you chose to, to engage and spend your life in, in philanthropy? and how you navigate the spaces 
given um, given all the given, given what you're bringing into the space. And anyone can start because I feel feel bad tugging on Morgan to go first every time, and Susan going last. Um, I I knew I wanted to be in a philanthropy since I was a little girl. Really? Yeah, I was about eight or nine, and my dad uh, described to me what a philanthropist was. And I was like, that is so cool. That's what I'm going to be. And he was like, well, you need some money. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, at eight, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and what I didn't realize, though, is that you can use other people's money. <laughs> and uh, so I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. Uh, and now that... I am here. <laughs> uh, <ph> <laughs> I have learned that not all philanthropists are uh, philanthropic. Mm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, and navigating this space as a black woman is uh, it is tricky. Um, as soon as I come in the room. I have a, I have, um, this is being recorded. I, so I know I've been at a table with someone who every time I open my mouth, I could see his jaw clench. Um, that's what it's like to navigate this space and to tell yourself, I'm not loud. This is how I talk, you know, to tell yourself, this idea is not ambitious. If I hear that one more time. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so ambitious. Really? <laughs> this is my job. That's not ambitious. Um, and to tell myself exactly that. No, this is my job. This is not ambition. This is what I do. Um, that's... that's how I navigate this space. It is the self-talk that has to be louder yeah. than everyone, what everyone else wants to tell you. Thank you, Susan. Mm -hmm. I entered this space more than 25 years ago. So I was a baby when I came into <laughs> philanthropy. Um, <laughs> and honestly, um, Prior to coming into formal philanthropy, I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So unlike you, this was not something that I grew up saying, oh, I want to work at a foundation or I want to do X, Y, Z. And um, however, in terms of understanding giving and receiving a grant, all of that happened for me in childhood. Um, and it was my mother and my aunties and my grandmother who fried chicken and sold dinners and did whatever to help a young person get to college and buy luggage and get, I received my first grant, you know, going to school. I had a book grant mm -hmm. and that paid for my books my freshman year. Um, so I knew that kind of giving and drive. A family lost our home to a fire. We gotta collect coats, we gotta get this, we gotta get that. That was what I grew up in. That desire to give, to help, to make change happen. And um, was brought up 
in the AME church where I was brought up to lead and to speak and to work with other young people to make change. So I worked in the nonprofit sector in DC after I came out of school and where I was working was in public housing communities in DC. Now this is the early 90s. So you have crack that is running rampant through DC. And what I knew of public housing growing up in Pennsylvania, let's just say when I was told, oh, you're gonna work in public housing communities, I was like, okay, cool. You know, I was 23, I'm, I'm down for it. And then what I saw was not what my reference was for public housing. And let's just say that those experiences that I had in my 20s going in and out of about 13 public housing communities in DC, working with mothers in public housing, working with seniors in public housing, and then babies, and being very clear and learning about the injustices, meeting with children and working with children who couldn't spell three and four letter words and saying, well, you know what, I'll come and meet your teacher. You know, they told me they had a parent-teacher conference. Mom can't go, I'll go. And then going into the schools and what I saw, I was like, oh my Jesus. <laughs> and honestly, the, I, and, and, and helping mothers in public housing organize, this is Potomac Gardens in Southeast Washington, when the community said they wanted to keep the people in the public housing community in. So the neighborhood voted to put a fence around the public housing community. And the fence was so high and the bars turned in and the children started calling their home Baby Lorton, which was the prison that served DC. And organizing with the residents because you know, there was only one unlocked entrance that they put up. And people asked, what if there's a fire? What if mm. someone has, needs an ambulance? What if this, that, and the other? So my, I will say, I was exposed to injustice so deeply and profoundly in those formative years where you think anything is possible and you can do anything. And um, I was raising money for my programs. I was 23, I had a budget of 30,000 that, that included my salary. And, and I thought I was doing something. Okay, don't look at me like that. I was like, ooh. I was, when they asked me how much money, you know, when we were negotiating salary, I just wanted a salary that was bigger than my age. So it was like, okay, I'm 23, you'll pay me 24, okay, that's great, you know? so. I didn't know, I was right out of school, didn't know nothing. So anyway, but I was told, if you want more, you gotta build it. So I learned how to fundraise. I learned how to work with people. I learned how to build relationships. And I built relationships with people in philanthropy. And then one day, I was offered a job to come into philanthropy. And I did, and I was the youngest person. I was told this, you're the youngest person I've ever considered bringing in to this foundation, and this was the Meyer Foundation, which is one of the oldest foundations in DC, and all of my colleagues were in their 40s and 50s. So I really was the youngest person um, coming into that space. But what brought me there was 
I came to a place where I wanted to make a difference at a larger level. It's like, how can I be of bigger impact? How can I be of bigger service? So that was the drive that brought me into philanthropy that has kept me here for the last 25 years. Thank you. Oof. Um, so I entered into philanthropy similarly. I was a young leader managing an organization. I love when I start thinking about back when I used to do things. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> some of the decisions I made. But I was a young leader working with, uh, working, uh, with uh, managing a youth organization, um, much of it working with young people that were criminalized and, and um, coming out of uh, an unjust criminal justice system. And I remember this one moment in my leadership journey where I clearly saw the distance between who I was when I was with, with staff, with community, with my young people, and who I was when I was fundraising. Mm-hmm. And the gap was wide. Mm-hmm. And then who I asked my team to be from who they were in fr- with each other and with our young people and what I asked of them in front of donors. There was a distance. And I convinced myself or rationalized it as we have to do what we have to do to get what we have to get so that we can be able to pour into a generation of folks who will one day create a new world where we don't have to do this anymore and there will be no distance. And yet, in that moment, I realized that distance in terms of our principles, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of who we were honestly being, the performativeness, Mm -hmm. it was dehumanizing. Yep. And so I made a decision in my leadership journey at that point. I said, I, you know, I wanted to be in a position where I can create a slightly more humanizing experience. Because the truth is, it's always dehumanizing if you have to ask for resources that were extracted from your own people anyway. And so I said, let me try. And somebody let me in to this one job. They regretted it, and I'm gonna be honest. And after I'm being recorded, you know who you are. <laughs> and there was, a, y'all know I'm being honest too. There, and I, I remembered, I thought that in my journey of trying to close the gap, create less distance in terms of who folks are so that they can be more consistently who they are, regardless of who they're talking to, I didn't realize how much distance I would have to face mm. being in the sector. And so one of the ways that I've been trying to negotiate it in my own leadership journey for the past, I think, 13 years now, is one of the things, is, which is why you all have heard me say the word principled, is being really committed to principled leadership because philanthropy is an unprincipled sector. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. We've got lots of principled leaders, lots. Many of them are black folk, right? But principled means that you are, consi- you are clear, politically clear. Yeah. And we've got a lot of folks that are politically clear in ways that are not in alignment with the kind of world we want to build, mm-hmm. right? And then there's a lot of folks who aren't even politically clear because they haven't done that intellectual work. Mm-hmm. The second thing it requires to know who your people are and who you're accountable to. Yes. 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 Mm. And the third is to be consistent at all those things. Mm-hmm. And Our sector is not principled because it is founded off of wealth that never required principles to begin with. Mm -hmm. And you can't concentrate power and wealth and be principled. Yeah. 
And so... Say it again, I got folks in the back. Sorry. Say it loud, I put a people in the You can't. Because wealth is concentrated through extraction. It is concentrated through hoarding. And it's concentrated through a belief of sorting humanity. And there's no principles there. And so, and I get it, there's nuances to all this, y'all. But I name that a part of my deep commitment is to be principled. And it is, and it is complicated. It's hard to always be accountable to those things because it's a confusing space to be in. Yes. And sometimes you don't want to think that hard. Yes. <laughs> the sector requires us to do a lot of thinking. And I was just so appreciating what you named around self-taught. The amount of calculations we have to do is real. And those calculations are both intellectual, political, and spiritual. Mm -hmm. With folks, oftentimes, not all, but some folks you're doing that with that doesn't even have the, the tool to start the numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I name that one, it's about like for me, principled leadership. I think the second thing, which has been a new part of my journey that I'm on, is to keep my spirit whole. Mm -hmm. Because while the philanthropy is a sector and that is big, and I, what I, me and a lot of my, colleagues and organizers call it the wealth industry. Mm -hmm. The wealth industry is, there's so much access to power and privilege and being in the sector, I'm not, you know, there's access to power and privilege for those of us that are in relationship to it. But spiritually, spiritually, it could be empty. Mm -hmm. And I come from a spiritual people. And so for me, it is making sure that I keep my spiritual spirit whole and create pockets of spiritual abundance for those of us that are in the sector that know we've got to return to that well in order to feel whole and know who we are because, because we often have to go back into spaces where we have to do a bit of a calculation and a dance. Thank you. All right. Um, <laughs> well, I think I am here because of all the work they've done. So my story is very, very different. My degree is in poetry and playwriting. Um, I moved to Seattle because my partner got into grad school. And I was an event producer. I ran a 400-acre resort where we, lit, where we went to undergrad. But when we moved to Seattle, no one would hire me because events weren't on my resume. So I, so because Seattle wasn't on my resume. So I became a nanny uh, because I built curriculums in Santa Fe for the resort, I built educational curriculums. So they were like, oh, you built curriculums, you can watch kids. I was like, sure, I can watch kids. Um, yeah. And so I was a nanny when we first moved to Seattle. Uh, I was 23 and all my friends were 40-year-old women and their friends and their kids. Uh, they're still my friends. Uh, and I was like, I gotta talk to 20-year-olds, like I need, friends who are not my partner's friends. I love her friends, but I needed other friends. Um, and um, so I was like, this Washington Women's Foundation is hiring for a part-time event coordinator. It's a little below my pay grade, but I can move chairs and I can make friends. That's what I'll do. Um, and I think, you know, when I got there, they'd never had a black employee. Um, and if you don't know philanthropy or you don't know Seattle, Seattle is the Gates Foundation and Washington Women's Foundation was founded before the Gates Foundation, right? So Melinda's a member. Every, Seattle's just money and family foundations 
and all of those women are a member of the Washington Women's Foundation, okay? And um, I was like, this is such an interesting concept. All these women come together and they give away money. That is so cool. Um, that's so great. Like they come together, they do it. And I was like, oh, but it's mostly white women and there's 500 women making a decision and they, and I'm their first black employee. And what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah. And I said all of that aloud. Um, and uh, it was 2016. I'm now 24. They're all devastated because Hillary just lost. We're hosting this national event. They are crying because Hillary's lost. And there's all these amazing, every big black woman in Seattle you can think of is on the stage trying to make these women feel better and saying like, you can do all of these things. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is amazing. Like the community is here, they trust us. So I call up one of these women afterward to say thank you. And she says, I'm only answering the phone because I won't let you fail, but I am done with those white women. And I was like, wait, what happened? <laughs> what did they do? What? I thought, I thought it was going well, like what's happening? Um, and she says, the Washington Women's Foundation only pays white women. And I was like, what? And so I walk into Beth's office, who is my funder, but at the time she was my boss. And I was like, so why do we only pay white women? And she has no idea what I'm talking about. And the truth is we were a staff of five. We did 40 events a year. They were spread across people. There wasn't an events person. Everyone was doing a couple events. Two people had a budget, two people didn't have a budget. The people who didn't have the budget had the capacity to get new people, and the people who did have a budget just kept using the same people. So it looked like we only paid white women. And so Beth, I said, let's change this all. And it happened to be all of the people who were there were leaving, and it was gonna be just me and Beth. And I said, she said, do you wanna you know, leave the kids and be full time? I was like, sure. She's like, what do you wanna do? I said, I'll build you an events department. I can educate these white women. I can learn philanthropy, I can do this. And so I did. I, I started doing 75 events a year. I would say, okay, this is what community's talking about, this is what nonprofits are talking about, this is what I need you to know so that you're a better board member, so that you're, a, again, I don't care about you being a better philanthropist, but I do need you, you represent me now. I'm a nanny. <laughs> I don't reward bad behavior. <laughs> And I know how to educate, right? Organism, right? And um, these white women said that they wanted to learn and they knew they needed to change. They were 25 years old. And I remember being in a marketing meeting and they were saying, our target audience for members is a 27-year-old woman of color. And I was like, that's me. So if you want young women of color, I have to show up as my real self. Because if you can't handle me, who is mostly palatable, you won't be able to handle the 27-year-old that comes in. Right? And, and I, I, remember, I remember going into my boss, and to be fair, Beth had said, when I had started, she said, hey, you need to tell me if something racist happens. <laughs> Do you want me to talk to you all the time? Like, what do you? And she was like, I'm always gonna be wondering if you don't tell me. So I remember after this meeting, I went back into her office. I said, so just so you know, 
I have decided to show up as myself. And no one is prepared for that. So I want you to know that I'm going to be me because you say this is what you want. And she said, okay, let's do this. And so we worked to change this 25-year-old organization into a place where community wanted us to be. And when we were both about done, I was like, I don't want to be in philanthropy forever. I'm kind of over it. She's like, I'm kind of over it. I don't know if I should spend my own money or if I should keep educating these white women. Is that my work as a white woman? I was like, I don't know. Um, and I was like, Portia wants to move to LA. I'm going to move to LA. And she's like, okay, great. You'll leave. I'll leave. I was like, I'll train your predecessor. It'll be lovely. Then the pandemic happened. And then I was like, thank God we didn't move. I just want a job. And then the uprisings happened. And I said, I'm doing an anti, how I'm doing a book discussion on how to be an anti-racist why people are in the street. I need to do something different. And then Toyin passed. And when Toyin passed, Beth texted me and she said, so do you wanna come build a company with me? You wanna come run my thing? And I was like, I love you, babe, but I don't know what your thing is. <laughs> and she was like, it could be whatever you want. I think us working together could heal our lineages. It could heal my family and it could heal your family. And I said, okay. And we built Threshold. And I say that because I think I am a product of what it means for someone to be poured into. My entire life, people have wanted to help me. My father was incarcerated for 23 years. My mom had me at 19. And my whole life, people have just wanted to help us. And I remember being in rooms with people who were saying what is risky to a community that they weren't a part of. And we were talking about, hey, who's been impacted by a, a, a nonprofit? People would say, I listened to NPR. And I was like, that's not what the fuck she needs. <laughs> okay, right? Like, that's not the same thing. And I was like, I remember being doing this thing called Snow Tree, where all the kids of incarcerated folks would put what they wanted on a tree and they would put on a little ornament. And I remember my mom saying, okay, we're gonna put your gifts on, a, on your, not the big gifts though, the small gifts. And then I'm gonna also take a snowflake and I'm, we're gonna buy gifts for someone else. My whole life was impacted by nonprofit and people pouring into, because there's not a lot of places in philanthropy where a very wealthy white woman says, but you're in charge, what do you wanna do? And to be fair, while we were at Washington Women's Foundation, that whole time she did that. We would be in meetings and people would be like, well, what do you think, Beth? And she was like, well, it doesn't matter because Morgan said what she thinks and you ignored her. So we're not doing this anymore, mm. right? And we still had to have conversations about, hey, your education, your growth as a white woman is on my back. Mm. The growth of this entire organization is because I let them touch my hair. Mm. It's because I shaved my head. And it was bad, but it wasn't as horrible as other people's experiences. And I think when I think about why I stay in philanthropy, if I'm being honest, it's, it's the place I've been cared for, right? When I was at Washington Women's Foundation, even that black woman saying, hey, I, I'm done with them, but I'm not gonna let you fail. There were so many black women in philanthropy who called me CC artists, Ada Prince Williams, who called me and said, hey, are those white ladies taking care of you? What do you need? People who said, hey, I wouldn't normally do this at this price, but I will for you. And so now I am in a position to where I can pour into others and I want to make sure that is done well. 
People think it's cool that me and this white woman get along, so they'll put a mic in front of us. So I'm going to say the thing, and she's going to say the thing, because that is our job when no one else is willing to do it. I think the other thing is, like, philanthropy is not altruistic, right? And so, like, white people have money because of enslaved labor and native genocide. You don't just have extra money, right? And... And I, I practice telling rich white women that, right? Like, they'd be like, well, Morgan, I, you know, I know what it's like to be poor. Well, Judy, when was the last time you were poor? You know, I grew up poor. And how old are you now? When is the, how much does milk cost? Right? I think a lot about the fact that a lot of philanthropy has coddled white people. And so then when we tell them they have to make a change, they're like, but you, but you said it would be... And so now I'm kind of sitting here like, what if we just tell them it's going to be hard? Because it's not your money and you need to give up something. And power sharing doesn't mean you get to just play with the toy and hand it when you're done. Power sharing means you're giving something up. Wealth redistribution, I can't say that word apparently. It means that you need to give something up. And the truth is, it's not yours. Okay, (laughs) so we have heard palatable, we've heard learn how to navigate spaces, we've heard lots of words about what it's taken as you've you've engaged in your work. Um, Susan, I have a question for you. Thinking about the, the work that you do, so you're a CEO of a foundation that was existing, and as you entered your work as a black woman with a vision, Walk us through your journey of how you've navigated these spaces to really push forward the vision that you have for Melville. Mm-hmm. Hmm. When I came into my role, I, um, I knew, so the Melville Trust focuses on, focused on ending homelessness. That was its sole focus, was ending homelessness. And um, I knew that Yes, worthy, um, worthy cause, but that wasn't the issue. Being homeless wasn't the issue, it was the symptom. It was one of many symptoms of the inequities, of the injustices, of the systemic racism, of our lack of opportunity um, uh, that was taken from us. And so I wanted to go deeper and in my interview, even though I had worked at the trust for six years, in my interview, I went through the full interview process and I told the board, if we want to end homelessness, we need to end homelessness for black people. We need to end housing instability for black people and we need to address the root cause of why that's happening. That's what I want to do. So if you don't want me to do that, then you shouldn't hire me into this role. So I was very clear what I wanted to do. Um, and, um, and so the board has, um, they've been very supportive. And I, ha- I mean, I, there's, there's pushback. There is, um, uh, it's a journey. 
It is always that's a code word in philanthropy, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's always a journey. Um, but I was very clear and laser focused, and that's that is something that we have to make sure that we stay is laser focused. People are always trying to knock you off your game, to distract you, something shiny, something this, something that. Well, that's maybe just a little bit too far. If you know that you know that you know, you know, someone told me one time, hold your north. And I keep that in the back of my head because no matter which way the wind blows, you hold your north. And so that's what I've done to navigate those spaces. Um, I, um, I work collaboratively. I think that two heads, three heads are better than one. Um, I, I make sure that there is space for other people's ideas. Now, you're going to have to convince me that it's a good idea. <laughs> but there's always space for someone's idea. And, um, and someone told me one time, always work yourself out of a job. So I'm always thinking, what's the next step? What are we supposed to be doing? And if that's too hard, nothing's too hard. It just depends on how much you want to work, how hard you want to work at it. And there's always going to be a co-conspirator that you can find somewhere to bring along with you. And so I look for those co-conspirators. Um, I look for a coalition of the willing. Um, and if it's two, if it's three, we stay laser focused and we go towards our goal. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for that, Susan. So Tanisha, Carmen, Morgan, all of you have started organizations. So would love to know, as you have gone about the process of starting your foundations, how have you brought your experiences, expertise, and what's truly best practice, so re redefining what best practice looks like to lead, a brand, what it looks like to build? Um, talk to us about that. I can start. So you know, the Black Feminist Fund um, was something that we had been planning and dreaming about for 12 years. Well, about 10 years, actually, so 12 years ago. And it was, you know, sort of myself, who, and I was based in New York at the time, um, so in the U.S., uh, a dear friend and comrade, Hakima Abbas, who was based in West Africa and was visiting um, and then a dear, a dear friend and person in the work, Amina Doherty, who's based in Caribbean in, in Antigua. All three of us, and I remember there was one particular with two of us, a conversation, it wasn't at a kitchen table, it was a dining table, and we were all just venting about the same thing, about money. So she's visiting, doing organizing work in Kenya, I was doing organizing and, and work in New York, and we, we're spending majority of our time not talking about sort of the global connections, that we can make about our work, not talking about the things we could plan or vision out for the organizations or the programs we were managing, or not talking about like how we might want to work together, right? We had been and known each other for years at that point. We could, we already had the foundation to be dreaming, planning, plotting, thinking, connecting. We spent all of our time talking about how hard it was to raise money and how hard it was to figure out how to, to, how to um, get resources out of philanthropy in the sector in a way that felt still good or whole. And that turned into like, you know, venting sessions with black women turning to planning sessions yeah. mm -hmm. all the time. And we literally were like, what if we had a fund that was global, 
that moved money to black women and gender expansive people's activism and did it in all the ways we tell this sector it, we, it can, but it continues to tell us it can't. Yeah. Uh, and then held onto it for 10 years and then finally launched in two years, two years ago. And so the question in terms of like building a thing is that there's a few things that I think we learned on the journey. One, one of the, the beauty of uh, black women's leadership is we know the biggest, brightest work we do is always in community, it's always collective. You know, the thing that often a sector or um, domin like dominance teaches us, white supremacy and patriarchy teaches us, is, some, is about king making and queen making. There's only room for one. So our leadership journeys are organized around one, and that is isolating, and it's, it's not sustainable. And so the one in leadership journey is, I rock with a team. And we make co decisions collectively together. It's so much easier <laughs> to be able to make decisions together in community with other smart black women. So I think that's first. The second is things take the time it takes. You know, I, for those first 10 years of designing and planning and thinking, I've held so much shame over it not launching yet. Somehow felt like I was getting in my own way. Something, all, and then also all the things flooding in that we often talk about, about not feeling enough. All those things are true, but things take the time it takes. And so that is something um, that has been really helpful. So that way we have two years now that we've been, we've been managed, starting the organization, we have a collective team of the dopest community of black feminist activists from around the world making decisions together. We have people like, y'all do a lot. Y'all did a lot in two years. We've, we've committed $14 million to 47 organizations in 30 different countries wow. in two years. And, and 21 of those organizations through one of our funds called the Sustain Funds, each of those organizations receive a grant between, um, and our grants range around $100,000 a year around the world and we're consistent. We don't believe in this thing where if you in the global south, you get less money than our folk in the global north. We could talk about that later. Because that, there's a way that anti-blackness shows up in anti-Africanness and anti-black women around the continent that is deep, y'all, and in the Caribbean and Latin America. But so it's about really actually investing in where the most brilliance is, which often is in the global south. But each of those organizations get a grant a year for eight years. We are now, as far as we understand, the longest running grant making program we have ever seen. Because the point is, we can make eight year grants, and I'm not talking about no eight, a grant where it's like, I'm, you can come back every year for eight years. You're, it is guaranteed, it's your money. And so I think our point is in terms of how we're trying to build a thing is we get to break these rules that have never made sense for us. And a part of it is we know that our resources that we're moving is the floor. We want to model the kind of solidarity funding that we deserve. We also say this, we say often, you fund us like you want us to win. And so I think in terms of building a thing, it's like we are trying to figure, model, like what does it mean to resource movements like we want them to win because our you can't win with one, one year grants. Yeah. You know, I often say folks want you to be Harriet Tubman for $15,000. <laughs> Pursue freedom! As long as it's under 15K. And by the way, in three months, you'll be ready for your site visit, right? And so, I mean, 
Don't get me started. Um, so anyway, I, I'll just say that I think what we get to do is model the kinds of things that feel outrageous for this sector. And so we wanna be really outrageous. And in many ways to sh uh, you know, hold folks accountable to a standard that they often say that they can't for regards of other reasons, but we, as we have done with always with our communities, we do a lot more with a lot less. And we don't have to, so see what we can do, and then give us a lot damn more. Yes. Carmen, I'm gonna toss it to you. I would say very similarly um, to Tanisha, first of all, I have enjoyed and have been blessed to do this with a group of sisters. So this is not a solo effort. Um, and it started very similarly with dreaming. So having sessions where, and, and our dreaming sessions were not only, it wasn't as much about venting, but reimagining. Because having worked in this sector in DC and then in New Orleans, I can tell you the impact of Racism and patriarchy is so profound here. It is profound. And I'm most grateful that the waters were troubled because if the waters were troubled, I would have been comfortable and WFS would not exist. If I was expected to be able to do what I'm doing, WFS would not exist. Mm -hmm. I still have people who bump into me asking me, how's that little project going? Okay? Oh, wow. So having <laughs> other women and saying, okay, can we build what we want to see? Because we have been inside these institutions, whether it's national philanthropy, whether it's private foundations, community foundations across the South, and know how hard it is to move money, particularly to people of color, and most difficult to women of color mm -hmm. in the South. It's hard. And how can we change that? How can we shift what philanthropy looks like in the South by modeling what you're saying, modeling how we think this should be done. So um, we had five founders, I'm one of them, um, and I'm so blessed that I was able to call on Gladys Washington, who when I first talked to Sister Gladys, you know, and, I, and, and you talk about feeling nervous and not knowing if you're enough and all those things. And I, I, I talked to Gladys and I asked, I told her what, I was, what we were thinking about and planning. And I said, Gladys, can I call you? She said, baby, call me. I said, well, I need your number. She said, well, take out your phone. And I took out my phone and I typed in Gladys and it popped up, all her information. She said, see, everything you need is right there. And it was a lesson to me mm. that here we have, 
you know, if you're questioning, if you're doubting what you can do, all of us are what we need and we have it right here. So we had 25, we had those five founders and then we pulled together 25 women of diverse gender expression, of diverse um, racially, diverse in, in age, come together to say, what should the values be of this, of this uh, organization, of this entity? What should the mission be? What should the focus be? And I'm talking real debate about language that evoked violence or words that you know, just were counter uh, to who we are as women. I mean, really just rich dialogue. And, and the values that came forth were values that looked very different. So the first value that we say that we honor is mother wit. And I'm often asked, well, why is that one of your values? And it's one of our values because we're very clear as women of color, when we don't know where the money's gonna come from, when we don't know what the answer is, we draw on that thing that is so deep within us. We draw on that mother wit, the knowledge that came from the ancestors that we've all called into this room to come forward with the solution. That's how we do the most with the very least. So we honor that value. We value the ingenuity of women. We honor sisterhood. We honor equity, justice. We honor community wisdom and we honor power sharing. So those are the values that build this organization. And I would say that having the opportunity to be an architect and plan um, the, the, the bones of the organization, and then once we were able to open our doors, and I jumped over a big thing, this kitchen cabinet of 25 women we said, okay, so we don't have a donor that donated a big amount of money for us to get started, okay? So we didn't have a donor dead or alive that contributed a large gift to start WFS. And we're like, so how do we get this started? Where's the capital gonna come from? And the first thought was, well, why don't we expand this circle and call on other black women working in philanthropy across the country? and ask them to give, ask them to ask their institutions to match their gifts and ask them to ask their allies to give. And so that's what we did. And that generated the first $100,000 that came into WFS. And some of the allies that came forward, the Minnesota Women's Foundation sent us $10,000. We like, Minnesota? Why would the Minnesota Women's Foundation send us money? Um, but it was striking, so that was the first. And then that $100,000 leveraged larger gifts. So we opened our doors in August 2021. So we're barely two years old. We opened two years ago with $1.3 million. And then it came the time, because we had done strategic planning, we had done an operations plan, to actually start everything from writing personnel policies and financial policies and practices, all of those things that most of us, when you get a job, you just go to the place and that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But this is the opportunity to be an architect. Mm -hmm. 
and sitting with my board and saying those values, mm -hmm. we want to make sure every last one of them shows mm -hmm. up in these personnel policies first for mm -hmm. how we treat our, our, our mm -hmm. people. So that was such a beautiful labor of love, creating those personnel policies. Now, my youngest and newest employee is here, so you can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong <laughs> in saying those policies, we wanted them to speak to the experience of, of women, of people, of whether you were trans, non-binary, what have you, and see yourself in our personnel policies. And then when we were selecting benefits, oh, that was such an experience. For instance, we um, purchased a FSA, a flexible spending account for our employees. And I'm going over with the broker for the FSA program. And he said, oh, when you choose your, who your staff could choose as a benefit, fiduciary, just just do staff, just do husband, just do spouse and ch and children, mm -hmm. and I said, well, what are the other categories? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, they could be grandmother, that could wow. be children, uh, grandchildren, adopted children. Yeah. But you know, most people don't have those. Wow. It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. But our yeah. women, black women, women of color, do have those. Yeah. So no, I want to say. Anybody who they taken care of, they can claim for their FSA. That's right. Wow. All right? Whether you buying depends or diapers. Yeah. You should be able to write that off. Yes. So anyway, having the opportunity to make those choices and understanding that they're choices. Understanding even down to developing a retirement program to when people can use their funds. It's like, nah, we often have emergencies. Okay, whether or not we got to come up with money for That's right. to help somebody who's been incarcerated or to help this, that, and the other, we have emergencies. We have things we need more money for. So all of that we built in, mm -hmm. and having that opportunity to be an architect yeah. of plans that were flexible, plans that spoke to the needs of women, putting in place things like financial planning for each of our staff members. And then when we went about starting our grant making program, we only had a little bit of money dedicated to regranting. And we said, what can we do that's meaningful with just a small amount of money? And to start our grant making here in Louisiana, right after Hurricane Ida had devastated our state, it gave birth to our flagship initiative called Woke at Rest, Women of Color at Rest. Because we were clear, instead of on those plans that we had of hosting listening sessions across the South, we said, no, nah, we don't need to be extractive. We need to pour into these sisters. And we understand after three years of COVID, after Hurricane Ida responding to disaster and compounding disaster, they need rest and support. So we gave them small grants, $5,000 and said, do what you need. For some women that look like, well, my home office was destroyed, I need to put it back together. Do it. For some women that look like I've had a double mastectomy 
and I need compression garments that I can wear underneath my clothes to look professional when I go out, do it. It looks like my mother is dying and I need to have time with her and not have leave without pay. Do it. It looks like I need a coach. I need someone who can support me or I need to just take a break. They got to say what they used the, the dollars for. We worked it out with our legal and accounting that they knew <laughs> it was taxable depending on how they used it, but they got, to, they got to make those decisions. And we invited them to a two-day retreat. Our curatorial partner is Junebug Productions here in um, New Orleans. So that retreat was based in culture and spirit and we brought them together. It was loosely programmed and we loved on them. We had massages and it was just wonderful to love on them, to see them love on one another and share. And then we listened as they shared their stories and we were able to learn from them. So this work now we've, we've started in Louisiana. We took this to Mississippi last year. And I have to tell you something for both of those groups. Women in New Orleans said to me, you know, like, uh, Carmen, is this for real? Yeah. Carmen, um, why'd you choose me yeah. for this grant? Why'd you choose me for this opportunity? And this woman who asked me this runs a statewide mental health organization. Mm -hmm. And this is after COVID, you gonna ask me why you? I said, aren't you doing the work, sis? And she said, yes, but just why me? And she said, I'm not the only one. All of us at this table have thought this is a hoax. And when we were in Mississippi, the sisters in Mississippi asked us, well, who gave you permission to start the foundation? Mm. And we said, <laughs> gave us permission? Uh. And they're like, no, no, really, who said you could do this? And when they were, we asked them about their experiences with philanthropy, the first word, and that kept going around, was trauma. Yeah. 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 Wow. So we've expanded this work to Texas, and now we're in, going into Georgia, taking this flagship work. But this is a way of building the ship as we are flying. We're flying it. We're building it as we're flying it. We're learning from women from across the South, and it's our goal that within five years, we will have reached our entire footprint and connected more than 300 leaders from across the South who will then inform what our grant making to build health, wealth, and power looks yes. like. Talk about, love that. And what better way to, to close, unfortunately close this conversation out, but on rest. Because because I think that that is the most critical. I think I love, who said it, you cannot, you can't dream uh, if you don't sleep. And so um, with that, Morgan, we thank you for coming on your sabbatical, your six month sabbatical, correct? That you have started? Six months. Um, but we, we will, one of the things that I'll, I'll make a plug for, first of all, I could have spoken with you all, all day long. 
And so we hope that there's a way to have you on Darren's podcast, Dreaming in Color, to just have longer stories because all of you have so much wisdom to share and just expertise and brilliance that is truly changing the world, changing the, the, the philanthropic landscape. And so just an honor and a pleasure. Um, and many of you had a chance to meet through the work that we're doing now, um, exploring the role of philanthropy and reparations. And so as we think about repair and progress, excited to continue these conversations with you all. I'm going to pass it back to Darren to close us out. I want to thank you guys all again for coming. Um, give everybody a round of applause. I want to give my team, so I give, give the, the panelists a round of applause, give you guys a round of applause for being here. Also for looking good. I just love, I said this earlier, black women, you don't, y'all just show up and look exactly like you're supposed to. Y'all always understand the assignment and I appreciate that. Uh, I would also love for my team to raise their hand. Uh, there's a whole team of folks that when Darren's talking about, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, there's some folks who actually make that happen. Uh, and so happy for that, particularly my assistant, Christina, who's probably hiding off somewhere. Uh, we made a plug for the podcast. Of course, please download the podcast, Dream Man Color. It's wonderful. I enjoy the episodes. We have a few folks actually from, I see you, Mary, Mary and Ais, uh, from the episodes that are here. Uh, there's a little something in the, in the handbag. I think you got Parlene's in the handbag too. That was my request. But there's also something about the uh, podcast in the bag as well. Uh, and Tanyal mentioned briefly, but British Band is, we got an article coming out on reparations, y'all. We got an article. I mean, come on now. Can you give us a round of applause? I mean. And I was talking with uh, my driver, you know, New Orleans drivers, they talk a lot. And, and I talk too, so I can't be mad at them. But the, uh, and the guy, the black guy was talking about how we need reparations. And I was like, you know, I used to think reparations was maybe a grandchild conversation. Because, you know, when you're black, you're used to things not happening in your lifetime. Like you're working for your grandchildren. You're, we're the only folks where our leaders get up and talk about, I hope one day my great grandkids can do something they should be doing now, right? But I, I think that reparations might just happen in our lifetime, y'all. I see it coming. So that's something to be really excited about. Uh, and so those are the only thoughts I have here. I'm going to leave you with a closing thought. So I'll give you a benediction as well as an invocation today. I don't get that normally. And this one, because it's pride, Paulie Murray. We need not despair because we seem to fail or cannot see the fruition of our efforts on behalf of others. If we build with love and compassion, we can build with hope. Mm. So as you guys are out there doing the work, the hope is within you. The love is within you. Mm. Carry out the work because all that's done in love is done well. I referenced briefly in opening the panel that everything I ever needed to know about strategic thinking, intended impact, and theories of change, I learned as a child watching my grandma listen to navigator kitchen table conversations at her home in uptown New Orleans. And listening to this brilliant panel engage in such a rich and inspiring conversation on philanthropy was like returning to my grandma's kitchen table. Un grand merci to Morgan Dawson, Tanisha McHarris, Carmen James Randolph, Susan Thomas, and my British band colleague Tanyal Edwards for joining me in Treme to make this conversation happen, for imparting their wisdom and humor on the group, and for beaming back the light and love reading from the beloved community they assemble. Thank you for your gentle, steadfast, life-saving work. And with that, stay tuned for season three of Dreaming in Color, coming soon. It's shaping up to be the best one yet. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a British band-supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout-outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas. Our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandro Ramirez. Our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez. And our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. 
And a huge shout out to our ever brilliant Bridge Band production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winslow. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.